This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. I've got on my episode today, Rachel Allen, who, as you know, she's been on the last four episodes. And this is our last episode. We're wrapping up the series that we've been doing on sexual health. I had a client talk to me this week about this series. He said that he's been enjoying the series, but one of the things he was saying is, you know, we've talked a lot about what not to do. When are we going to get to the, like, here's how to do it differently, or here's what to do. So I told him, I said, well, it's coming. We're going to get there. So this is that episode where we're really going to wrap everything up that we've been talking about and really talk about going forward. What, what do we do differently or what, what are the to do's instead of the not to do's? Well, I wanted to start with a quote by Patrick Carnes, and this is, for those of you who aren't familiar with Patrick Carnes, I've mentioned him before. He's kind of the international, not kind of, he is the international expert on sex addiction. And this is out of his book, The Betrayal Bond, Breaking Free of Exploitive Relationships. He says, unless we learn how to handle betrayal and the torturous, obsessional relationships that evolve out of treachery, we add to the betrayal of the planet. Trust is restored when we learn to trust ourselves and build trust with others. There is no other way. So today we're going to talk about kind of like what does healthy sexuality require of us and how does that show up in the moment in a way that is not restoring trust in ourselves or with another person. So after that long introduction, welcome back. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad, glad to be here. Made it to this episode talking about healthy sexuality. Like, I'm glad that we're kind of bookending, well, maybe not even bookending, but wrapping up the series with this, because I think it's kind of, we've been building to this for four episodes now. Right. And I'm excited to talk about what it actually looks like in practice. Yes. So some of what we're going to be talking about, we're taking from... Patrick Carnes' book, Don't Call It Love, which came out in 1991. And then also it shows up in Alex Katahakis's book, Erotic Intelligence, which came out in 2010. So this is kind of this list of like what healthy sex looks like and like what we have to let go of or what needs to change in order to be healthy sexually. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like the first maybe point is that unhealthy sex kind of originates from a shame-based sexuality. Right. And the healthy part of that is healthy sex should deepen a sense of self and embrace one's erotic slash animal nature. Like it shouldn't be as controlled. It shouldn't be as shame-based. It should be leaning in. Right. And I think just for most people, who are sexual beings, right? Alive today at this point in history, most of us have been touched by some shame around our sexuality or another, whether it was in the family we grew up in, right? And maybe sex just wasn't talked about. And so one of the subtle messages that you may have um, interned at a deep level is that sex must be bad because what we don't talk about, right? Obviously must be a bad thing or something that's wrong. And so I think to look at that, like, how do I deepen a sense of myself and even embrace those parts of myself that are a little bit more erotic or a little bit more, like you were saying, less controlled and less like my, you know, part of myself that shows up at the dinner party that like knows my manners and knows how to behave and is very polite and all of that stuff. I mean, we almost treat like our animal nature as something bad, right? Like I remember looking at like even in Disney movies growing up, like that idea of being posh or polished all the time um, right. was there. And yet there's something that really draws us to like the nature of things. It draws us to being more simplistic and just going with our gut and going with our feelings. And I think that we need safety to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for those of who are, who are maybe developing that sense of healthy sexuality, um, there is going to be a part of you that maybe, you know, when you kind of let go and 
let that more carnal, more erotic, more animalistic side come forward, like the next day or, you know, an hour later, you may be like, well, that was kind of embarrassing. Because right. that's not like you were saying, we, we kind of try to repress that. Like I've evolved beyond my animalistic instincts, right? And I think that's okay. Like if you're talking that out with a partner and saying like, hey, that was kind of embarrassing to me. Like now that I'm thinking about it with the lights on and going about my day, I'm thinking back to like sounds I made or things that I said or ways that my body moved. And I'm like, what? And I think just, you know, hopefully you have a healthy partner who's like, that's okay. And I felt that way too. And moving through the shame to really embrace all of the parts of yourself. Right. Which kind of moves into the next point. Like healthy sex should be mutually respectful and honoring. And the, the like flip side of that is to take advantage of others or to manipulate and control the sex. But like if sex is mutually respectful and honoring and we're kind of leaning into this animalistic space or more emotional space or more impulsive space. However you want to describe that, there is some letting go of that control and respecting each other and honoring each other in that space while you're still trying to figure out yourself, right? And which goes with the next one, right? Because unhealthy sex really kind of compromises one's integrity, whereas healthy sexuality reinforces this congruent sense of self. Yeah. Now, if you're maybe shifting some things or trying to do things different or learn about healthy sexuality, a lot of the things that you've been taught about your integrity or what you need to do to have integrity is going to move back to those shame-based messages you got about sexuality, right? So a lot of these things are going to play off of each other and build with each other. And being in this relationship that we've talked about, which is respectful and honoring, right? That does not compromise your integrity and embracing those parts of yourself that maybe don't get out to play very often also does not compromise your integrity. Right. Well, I think the other piece for me in that whole thing is like, I mean, we could talk about the value of integrity forever, but like a lot of times we're taught that integrity is being like honest with the world. Uh which really integrity is actually being honest with the self. Like it's living in congruency with ourself. Yes. And so like, I I just love that idea of when, when we lose some of that integrity with ourselves, when we lose some of that idea of living in congruency with ourselves, like we've talked about and, and really touched on before, like sexuality is an integral part of our core self. Like Mm -hmm. it's part of who we are at a core level at, at a very base of who we are. And so when we compromise that, we really miss some of those great senses of like what is very unique to us in sex. Mm -hmm. And I think that healthy sex allows us to do that. Right. Well, and I I often talk about like confidence or self-esteem. I'll say really that is a knowing and an accepting of the self. Mm -hmm. And that can show up hopefully, right? Both outside of the bedroom or outside of where I'm sexual and also in my sexual encounters, right? In my sexual experiences. And so if I have this sense of self that's congruent, right? And I know who I am. I'm comfortable with who I am. I can embrace who I am. Then that's going to give me a a sense of confidence or that will add to my self-esteem, right? Because I know who I am and I'm okay with that. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I think moving into the next point, this is the fourth point, is that healthy sexuality recognizes vulnerability as the road to intimacy and eroticism. Right. So whereas the flip side of that is oftentimes people confuse intensity for intimacy. Mm -hmm. And so in healthy sexuality, right, there is going to be this vulnerability that leads to this intimacy. And I, I tell people a lot, like when somebody sees us at our best, right we don't have a problem with intimacy. And often that's what we want with intimacy, right? Like I want people to know all the great things about me, but real intimacy is also like, they know my 
areas of development that I still are am working on, right? They know the parts of me that I might feel a little bit more uncomfortable with, or I'm not quite sure about myself, right? They know the challenges that I'm dealing with. All of that is really that vulnerability and intimacy. And, and I think that that is that we've talked about this in other episodes, right? That's kind of the area that's going to lead to that eroticism or that novelty or that arousal because we see this person continuing to develop and grow. Yeah. Well, and I love like that idea. Well, and this really goes back to like, we use a tool um, called the courtship inventory, which I've used a lot in therapy and you and I have talked about how I use it a lot in therapy, but I love the fact that that breaks down, like there's a buildup to physical sex. And it is about like going from not being vulnerable at all to being very vulnerable. And there are steps and levels to that. And I think oftentimes in unhealthy sex, we will use the act of sex itself to create vulnerability and intimacy, which is that intensity piece, right? Like we'll fix a fight with sex or if something's off, we'll kind of demand that that take place so that it creates a band-aid. But the other side of that, that idea of like the more vulnerable we're able to get, the more intimacy and eroticism shows up in that is extremely powerful. Like it, it's literally like you're taking the layers off from the day. Like what you defend with, with the world, you step into the space where you don't have to defend, where you don't have to be ready for a fight, where you don't have to worry about what happens when you're seen. Right. And that develops from there. Yeah. Which I think for all of us who have this sexual shame, or we grew up with some messages about sexuality that have gotten in the way of having healthy sexual attitudes and healthy sexual experiences. um, I think healthy sexuality allows for that exploration. It, It allows for this sexual meaning making, right? That I can make meaning out of my sexuality Mm -hmm. and I can actually rewire the brain. And there's been some great research done where, you know, for people who identify as maybe um, sex addiction or pornography addiction, that as they move more into healthy sexuality, there is a rewiring of the brain and how Mm -hmm. the brain uses and approaches sexuality. Yeah. I mean, I think that, well, and you know, I'm, I'm a person that uses growth analogies all the time, but like, I think about plants and how when they're growing and changing and developing, like they will actually shift the root system mm-hmm. to find water. Or like if uh, soil is bad, like they will try to shift away from the soil and, and rework themselves. And I often think of like the neurons in our brain, kind of like that root system, the more that we reinforce some really positive and beautiful and structured things like we get that rewiring where we'll move away from the negative or the the things that are harmful or damaging and i think that the more we can lean into that exploration and really like vulnerable connection and it be good and positive the less likely we are to kind of fall into that shame cycle of sex being damaging and harmful and scary. Right. Or we also know, right, that sometimes this unhealthy sexuality can be a reenactment of trauma and not just sexual trauma. I mean, obviously that's kind of a, uh, that's a little more obvious that sexual behaviors can reenact sexual trauma, but it can also reenact other types of trauma that are not necessarily sexual in nature, right? And, and we'll talk about this in a minute. It gets to the power and control issues or the helplessness and the lack mm-hmm. of power somebody felt that, you know, sex can be very powerful. So when you're approaching sex from this wounded place, right, often what ends up happening is it doesn't actually heal the previous trauma. It's just kind of a flip side of the trauma and we're just reenacting it either from the same perspective, kind of trying to get a different outcome or from the other side of what happened to us. But really what's happening is it's just kind of cementing these arousal patterns in the brain and reinforcing this idea that sexuality is not safe. Right. Well, and I think that you, I, 
I am 99% sure I have listened to a previous episode of yours where you talk about how trauma reenacted in the brain and how that shows up. And like, that's no different for sexuality like that, you know, that's a huge piece in that. And so when we're starting to recognize what is trauma reenactment, what recognize what is like healthy and vulnerable versus some kind of trauma play, then our brain starts to also heal that trauma that shows up for us which I think is right. incredibly powerful. Like that's such a, it's powerful medicine, right? Yeah. And I think when we're in kind of this trauma state or we don't have a feeling of safety and security around sexuality, what happens is there's going to be a level of unhealthy disassociation mm-hmm. versus in healthy sexuality, right? Healthy sexuality requires a person to experience the feelings in their body. Right. I've got to show up and I have to be present with what's going on. And otherwise I'm kind of dissociated and I'm going through things, but I'm not fully present. And I really couldn't tell you what was happening in my body. Right. And I mean, you and I both experienced this so many times where like clients will talk about like checking out and just not even being in their body when sex is happening or going to fantasy or really maneuvering like clients who create lists of what needs to be done the next day while they're having sex or like, like the anxiety of what they could be doing out, you know, if they weren't taking this time for themselves, like that is such a huge piece of unhealthy sexuality that we see a lot. And there really is a lot to say about being able to stay present with your partner, not going to fantasy, stay in your body. Mm-hmm. and feel what you're needing to feel. Also, like, I think that that's where we learn what we like and what we don't like and what it feels good to us, what we can lean into. I think like that also really adds to that sense of self and being able to kind of give to the eroticism or the animal nature that we were talking about at first. Like you can't live in that space if you're not there to do that. Right. And I think keeping people in their body around sex is a huge part of what we do in healthy, trying to get healthy sexuality going. The, the other thing is if, if I'm disassociated, if I'm not staying in my body, I can't show up relationally. Mm-hmm. And I think healthy sex, right. Demands that we experience the present, like we've talked about mm-hmm. and that we stay relational. Right. And, right. and, and I've had clients before where, Sometimes when they're describing how they approach sexuality, I mean, and and I, you know, I I can be pretty direct in therapy sessions. I know you can be pretty direct in therapy sessions. So for the listeners who don't necessarily know us in our, in our sessions, we also spend a lot of time developing this trusting, safe relationship with clients so that we can be pretty direct and we can ask some pretty vulnerable questions without putting them in a shame cycle or damaging this therapeutic relationship, right? So one of the questions I'll sometimes ask clients when they're talking about how they approach sex or, or what sex looks like or means for them, I'll say to them, like, so help me understand why another person is necessary for this. Yes. How does another person change what you just described to me? Because what I'm hearing from you, like maybe it's nice to have another person there, or that's your preference, but they're not necessarily part of this for you. Right. And I think healthy sexuality really demands that we are relational. Yeah. Well, and there's such a huge piece of that for me that like, cause the flip side of that is like people will check out of sexuality so much that like, that's the anorexia piece that they don't need it at all. Right. They've, they've toned it down and disassociated so much to the point that like, They just don't need sex, but they really do. Like that is a really connecting and meaningful part of a really, of their relationships, but they don't know how to turn that on or get that back or whatever. And so like, I do a lot of work with clients around meditation, actually. Like, Mm -hmm. I think that meditation is huge and like paying attention to the feelings in the body and the experiences in the body, which I feel like that's one of those like really mundane practice tools that like 
literally you can plug and play everywhere, right? Like mm-hmm. if you need to get in touch with your body, do some meditation. <laughs> right. Um, well, and I do think we have this sense in our society and maybe it's always been there where we avoid feelings at all costs and healthy sexuality requires us to feel deeply. Yes. And I can't just feel deeply sexually if I'm not feeling in the rest of my life. So yeah, I'm going to have to feel things at a deep level in order for that sexual part of myself to, to be developed. And we talked about before I hit record, the quote that Patrick Carnes, I don't know, I couldn't find it in one of his books, I think, but he, he says this like in the trainings or different things like that. I've heard him say um, that sexuality is the deepest expression of the self. Yes. Right. Not the most important. He doesn't think that right, but it's the deepest expression of the self. And so when we're talking about like sexual anorexia, right, that's a bigger issue than just the sexual, right? Like I'm going to be sexually anorexic there's part of this that I'm going to avoid a lot of feelings mm-hmm. because my feelings may lead to some sexual feelings, right? I might feel aroused. I might feel connected. I might feel things deeply and healthy sexuality requires us to do that. Right. And that really, and I, I was trying to think too, like, even as we were talking, because we did talk about that quote earlier, like, I know I've heard him talk about that in trainings and yeah. I know, so like, it's something that he has said. I don't know if he's actually written it down because Patrick Carnes has said a lot of things that he says he's going to write down. He has a lot of books written in his head. In his head. Yeah. (laughs) They're not on paper yet. So yeah, I think that that's, but I think that that's such a beautiful idea that it is the deepest expression of self. Mm -hmm. Like there's a lot of stuff that we kind of layer on top of that because I think that human beings are incredibly complex and we're not just our sex drive. We're not just our sexuality. But I think that when you are really in touch with your sexuality and you know who you are and you're in a healthy place, like that is a very vulnerable, very true piece of who you are. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's such a beautiful thing. It also plays into what Brene Brown says about her research is that we can't selectively numb that if we numb one emotion or one feeling, we're numbing everything. So if you're trying to numb the bad, if you're trying to numb the pain, if you're trying to numb the sadness or the grief or whatever, you're also numbing joy and exhilarance and happiness. And both of those, the, the darker sort of emotions, those heavier sort of emotions and the ones that are lighter and like more content play into who we are as sexual beings. And so if we're numbing that, like you, you can't be a fully healthy sexual being and be emotionally numb. Right. Which I think also goes to another one of the points that Patrick and Alex make it, talking about healthy sexuality, right. Is that it relies on self-love and self-nurturance. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things I hear for so many women sex addicts or partners or just women who are coming in to work on other issues, right? Is this self-loathing that they feel about themselves, about the body. I hear it differently from my male clients, but it's also there, this self-loathing or this feeling of themselves being self-destructive, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of them embracing their power, they feel like they're destructive with their power, So sexual health really comes from this place of self-love and acceptance and nurturing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And well, and, and even in that, like, I don't know that we are a culture that does a lot of self-love and nurturance. Like, well, no, because we're always chasing the, this is, this will make me better or thinner or prettier or firmer or tone, right? Like, I mean, we're always chasing something to make ourselves look better. So there's not really this place of acceptance or then self-love and how do I nurture that? Right. I mean, like, it's one of those things where like, I don't know that you can have a society built on consumerism that is literally built on you need this because really we don't need as much as we think we do. Mm -hmm. And the things that we do think that we need, we usually abandon for the thing. I mean, the things that we actually need we usually abandon for the things that we think we need. Right. Which is 
you know, like connection and friendships and community and all of that, which we are really good at avoiding with screens, honestly, and other things. One of the things I want to talk about, because this client that I was talking to, one of his questions was, and he, you know, he's male. And so he, he said, like, I have questions about like how this works for females. And, you know, he's like, I'm going to ask you because I feel safe asking you as a female. And so he said, like, you know, this kind of, there's this idea of like patriarchal, like what the expectations are for women, right. And beauty. And, and so he said to me, like, I mean, I wear makeup and he's like, you know, you, you dress fashionably and you wear makeup and you, he's like, I'm assuming that you don't do that for others, right. That there's part of you that does that for yourself. But like, how does that look? Or where is that? Like, what is appropriate or what's kind of that patriarchal appropriation for females versus what's like, what's normal. Right. And, and I, I did tell him, I said, I mean, I've, I've thought about this and I, I mean, sometimes there's things that I've thought about this where I don't know, right. I don't, because I grew up in a patriarchal culture, so I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But you know, I, I did tell him, I said, right. Like, I don't know that for women to love themselves or to be nurturing and accepting of who they are, that that means they don't wear makeup or they, you know, don't necessarily, I mean, female fashion tends to show our bodies a little bit more than males, although that's somewhat moving a little bit. But I said, I don't, I think a lot of this has to do with the relationship or the experience we have with ourselves. Right. And so it doesn't mean that I need to be that granola looking it doesn't mean that that's not acceptable, right? right? I think a lot of it is determined on what's going on inside and the relationship that the person has with themselves. Right. And I would say that, I mean, this is a hard line for me to to kind of walk to. And I, I have struggled with that because I do have some like, really gran- like granola kind of friends. Like they, they call themselves granola. So I don't feel like that's insulting, but like they are very natural. They don't wear makeup. They don't try to live in societal norms for women's mm-hmm. beauty, which I, I think is super cool. But we've had conversations where like there can be some shaming because I do. Mm. And then, but there's this other extreme of people that I know that like, literally alter so much of their body. They don't even look like the person they were born either in order to fit the societal norms. And I don't know where the line, I think that line of healthy really falls for the person. And you've got to figure that out for yourself because regardless of the flaws of society, it is the society we live in. It is the society that we are washed in. It is the society that we breathe. And do I think that it could completely change? Absolutely. Do I think that other cultures look completely different? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I also think like you got to figure out what feels comfortable for you. And that's some of that sense of self, right? Because there's the other extreme because we're talking, I mean, I don't think that sex is binary. Right. Um, And they're like, I have friends who identify as genderqueer. And watching them in this process, they wear makeup and they're males Mm -hmm. or they wear, you know, trucker clothes and they're females. And there's some of this like mixing of the genders that happens with, with them specifically Mm -hmm. that they have created their own sort of comfortable. Mm -hmm. I don't know that. I don't think it's bad to shift up the binary that we have, that we have had, right. Or that we've liked to believe that we have. Right. So like, I, like I'm trying to think about what this would mean in terms of like self-love and nurturance Mm -hmm. and like, cause that's really kind of where we started with this. And, and truthfully, like, I don't feel great about myself if I don't get up and get ready every day. Like it's, and I don't know if that's just a part of my routine and I'm used to that and it feels comfortable and I like the world to see me in a certain way. Or if that, I mean, that's just part of the self-care that I've built in. Like if I had a different version of self-care, if I had a different version of getting ready, yeah, that would probably be different for me. Yeah. Well, and I remember like I was probably 14 years old and we were camping as a family and 
I remember like getting up one day and, you know, I brushed my teeth in that morning and I had gotten dressed and whatever. And I came out and was like helping my mom cook breakfast. And my mom said to me, like, how come you didn't put on makeup? And I was like, I didn't even bring makeup. And she was like, why wouldn't you bring makeup? And I was like, uh, cause I'm camping. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm also not washing my hair. Like I was just like, cause I'm camping. And she was like, I brought my makeup. Like, and my mom, like my mom put on makeup every day of her life. Mm-hmm. And I was a little like, yeah, no, I, you know, that I can go without makeup. I can go to the store without makeup. You know, my professional put together self usually has makeup. And on Saturdays I have some variation of makeup even, but I can go without it. Right. And I think each generation of females is moving a little bit more towards maybe a balance or kind of more of an internal decision-making process mm-hmm. instead of kind of this external, here's the expectations and you need to look a certain way to be acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I remember one time, so my mom was the same way. She uh, always wore makeup. And honestly, like I, my society growing up, like it, it my the culture of women in the South was very much like you're strong, you're but you're also put together, right? Like women weren't really allowed to unravel. And if we did, we did that in the safety of women. We didn't do that around men. And I remember, and I cannot remember if it was my mother or my aunt, but I remember them referring to makeup as war paint. Mm. It is the armor we put on every morning Mm. so that we can hold it together. And like, I actually think that was around a funeral to be honest. (laughs) Yeah. But like, I, I remember that very distinctly, like, and I don't remember who said it or where it came from, but I remember that, like, this is what we do. This is our armor. And I think that going back to kind of the vulnerability and taking the layers off so your partner can see you, like that's some of it, right. For women. Like, I think, especially if you're used to having makeup on all the time, like, can your partner see you without makeup? Can, can you move into that space when you take off that layer? Right. Because healthy sexuality does demand again, this truth and authenticity, like we've been talking Mm -hmm. about. Right. Right. Yeah. Which again, like is, I mean, culturally right now we have a song, like I woke up like this Mm -hmm. and I think Beyonce sings it and I mean, it's kind of a joke, right? Because no one wakes up like that. Like even Beyonce doesn't wake up like Beyonce. It takes, takes a minute for her to get it pulled together. But that is kind of a thing. Like, no, this is just my natural way that I look. This is the natural way that I like get up. Like maybe if you're sleeping on needles and not rolling over in the night, but like, well, or, I mean, I've had clients who are the generation older than I am and they got up like an hour before their husband, right? And went to bed after, like they'd get in the bed, right? With makeup, hair done, everything. Then they'd get up after he had fallen asleep, kind of get themselves comfortable and then get up before him so that he did think that's the way that you woke up, right? That's the way you always look. You go to bed looking like that. You wake up looking like that. Yeah, there's actually an episode of uh, Grace and Frankie where Uh Jane Fonda's character does that. Like she's- like she gets up and like puts on false eyelashes and like brushes her teeth and like, right. And I was just like, that's a lot of work. I'm like, I like to sleep in the morning. Right. Yeah. I do nothing before coffee. <laughs> uh, so I think but, the other thing about sexual health, right. Is it, it's joyous right? It celebrates life. It celebrates partnership and really gets us into that spirituality part of ourself, right? Not, not necessarily the religious part of ourself, but the spiritual part of ourself, right? Where I'm showing up and you're, I'm allowing another person to see the soul and the spirit of who I am. So, right. Un, un kind of restrained or unstructured, Oh, well, and here's that I love, I love the idea of sexuality and spirituality being like wrapped up in even sexuality being a form of spirituality mm-hmm. because most religions in their inception held that. Like when we look at Judaism and uh, really like Hebrew 
ancient Hebrew uh, belief systems, and even early Christianity, like sex was a sacred act of worship. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that that looks very different now, like our very puritanical sacred act of worship looks very different than it did. And, you know, all of that was mm-hmm. patriarchal structures and probably not super healthy either. But that idea of like giving something that you wouldn't normally give, bringing something to the table that opens you up, that is expansive, that allows mm-hmm. like whatever your higher self is or higher you know, whatever in, not in a creepy way. Cause I think that that can get super creepy, but like, mm-hmm. you know, like even if it's just the higher version of yourself, the better parts right. of who you are and letting that shift and move and teach you. I think mm-hmm. that that's beautiful, right? Like some of the most spiritual experiences that I have that are like non-sexual are usually like after a really nice hike when and I didn't grow up around mountains like the Rockies where we live now. And there is something about like coming around the bend and just seeing all of the valley below you. And yeah. that being the precipice of your hike, like that's an experience that gets you connected. And I think that that's what spirituality is. Ultimately, it's a connecting with something. Yes. Well, and I think also spirituality spirituality gives life meaning. Yes. Right. I I think that's the essence of kind of spirituality is it's this meaning making thing. And when I ask clients, like what, what meaning do you make of your sexual experiences or how does your sexual side open up this pathway to your spirituality? Right. I mean, I've had several male clients who are like, I don't even know that question. Like, I don't even <laughs> know what you're saying, right? I had one right. client who's like, I don't know what you're saying. I like what you're saying, but I don't even think I'm capable of understanding it. And right. I was like, okay, well, let's talk about that, right? Let's, let's get it so that you are able to look at your sexuality from that perspective instead of just looking at it from what the porn industry has decided to sell you. Right. Which again is, is that like consumerism kind of drive, right? Like if we always need something more to fulfill us, we cannot be satisfied with self. And I love, so I'm going to merge like two authors right now. So Rob Bell talks about everything is spiritual and he like, and he has like people on his podcast from like yogis to artists, to writers, to like scientists and like he always breaks down the spiritual component of that and what that looks like, even if it's kind of minute, like sometimes he doesn't focus on the spiritual as much as all at all, but like taking that concept and what uh, Mary Roach says in the book bonk, which if you haven't read that book, it's great. I love Mary Roach. You said bonk. B-O-N-K. Yeah. It's the science of human coupling. Mm. And one of the things it's like, a, I can't remember if it's like a footnote or a side note. She does a lot of, random notes in the book. But, um, one of the things that she says is there's actually no reason for humans to have sex, uh, biologically because we have created capacity for our world and other animals will like stop breeding Mm -hmm. if they're at capacity, like they kind of know that. And so Mm -hmm. they'll just kind of like, take a pause or figure that out. We don't do that. And and she basically is saying like, if that's true, then there has to be another component to sex and it has to be pleasure. It has to be spiritual. It has to be about the connecting relationship piece Mm -hmm. um, that we don't necessarily find in most other species of animals, which I think is fascinating, right? Like that's like, I love that whole term conscious coupling. Yes, because it is about this. I, I think so often the way sex shows up in society is either kind of in this binary, right? It's either bad and we don't talk about it mm-hmm. or it's kind of in your face, but not really conscious, right? right. It's not really meaningful. It's not necessarily deep or anything, right? And so this conscious coupling, like getting into relationships and all that that entails and doing so consciously. Mm -hmm. 
right? Why am I in this relationship? Why do I continue to be in this relationship? Yeah. I mean, and that's uh, like, there's just so much of that. Like I love just the science behind why we couple, why we choose who we choose, mm-hmm. why we stay together for long periods of time. Like there's really some beautiful things that come out of that. that but I think incredible. you have to be connected to yourself yes. and be to grow and confront yourself, right? Otherwise, the relationship reaches a point in which you can't go past that, right? And right. I mean, that might be two years into the relationship. And then we're like, oh, like human beings aren't meant to be monogamous, right? Like one person can't meet all of my needs. I think that has a lot more to do with you as a person being uncomfortable with your own needs and allowing another person to see those, right? And it does about, you know, not being able to be monogamous. Right. Well, and I think that that also goes to like the healthy sexuality piece of like, you have to demand truth and authenticity in yourself. Like Mm -hmm. you have to be authentic. You have to show up authentically. You have to know what is congruent within yourself and you have to be able to kind of balance this idea of being kind and being aware of your, uh, the other person and take risk and, and put yourself out there and, and living kind of in that congruency of growing and developing and struggling and being willing to do that with a partner. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that, I mean, I tell people all the time, like we're organic beings. If we're not growing, we're dying mm-hmm. um, because that's just how the world works. Like we, we watch that in animals. We watch that in plants. We watch that in literally everything around us. Mm-hmm. And if we are not growing and developing and providing fruit, then we're dying. Then we're in a stage in which we are cutting things off and pulling things in. And sometimes that stage lasts for decades mm-hmm. and it shouldn't. Um, well, and I love like some of the research. I never can say this author's name. He wrote flow that the book flow. Oh yeah. I, I can't, I, I don't, I can't say it unless I'm looking at it. So, right. But, and, and other research is kind of saying this idea of aging that we've had is yes. actually not accurate. Right. And that for people in their, let's say late thirties, early forties, right. we kind of hit a, like we've hit a flow in life in which I don't necessarily like, I'm not maybe climbing my career ladder, right? Like maybe I've arrived. I'm not necessarily going to school to better myself. Adults rarely go barefoot, right? On uneven like textures, right? If we do go barefoot, it's maybe in our house, which those, that flooring is very purposeful, right? Mm -hmm. And, and so all of this idea of like you use it or lose it, right? That they're saying aging actually happens because we've hit a comfortable place in our life, kind of in our forties or comfortable enough Mm -hmm. that I stop using things. Right. I stop using those things. I start to lose those things. Right. Well, and that, I mean, that reminds me of like the, the woman who's like 105 and is still a gymnast or dancer or whatever. And like, she's never stopped Mm -hmm. and everyone's so amazed, but really that's what you're talking about. Like she never stopped. She never gave up on those things. She's continued to learn new skills. She's continued to learn new dances. And there's a lot to, I mean, like we talk about synaptic pruning in college as, as like in psychology, we talk Mm -hmm. about that, like that our brain starts to go through synaptic pruning at like 11 or 12, Mm -hmm. where like all the stuff we learn in childhood that it decides we just don't need it like lops off. But why wouldn't our brain continue to do that? Right? Like we defrag our computers. We, have to like make space for new things on in in our houses in our lives like why wouldn't our brain need to do that mm-hmm. and i think that there is a lot around that risk taking or that like trying to figure life out and continuing to grow and push and and question now 
that is, that is my default setting. Like I am coming to understand that that's a lot harder for other people because if I get comfortable or if I get in a flow, I am quickly trying to get out of it. Like Mm -hmm. I need to, I have to know more. I have to read another book or I have to like take on a new skill. I try to learn something new or do something new that I've never done before every year. You know, like a couple of years ago, that was golfing. I was terrible at it. But it was a lot of fun because I'd never done it. Yeah. But I think like that's the other thing that kind of shows up. Like I think it's actually one of the unhealthy traits. I'm actually reading through it. Yeah. Like it's rigid or routine. Like unhealthy sexuality is rigid or routine. Like Mm -hmm. if you're not exploring sexually, you should be. (laughs) Right. Right. If we're not going to fall into a rut around your sexuality, that's not healthy. Right. And you know, and that's some of that, like putting yourself out there and, and trying different things, um, initiating when you don't usually, yeah. which is also around the risk-taking and being vulnerable mm-hmm. and willingness to feel deeply. Like it, you're going to have to reach to your partner. Like if your partner is the one that always reaches and is like, Hey, we need to have sex or I want to have sex or I want to connect mm-hmm. with you. And you're scared to do that. Like that speaks to you not being willing to be vulnerable with your partner. And I get that that's scary. Well, and I think a lot of women leave that to the man, right? right. And, and I get that it has a lot of the messaging, like if they are pursuing sex or if they're saying, hey, I have this sexual desire, what does that say about them as a female? Right. But again, you're not risk-taking. And healthy sexuality does involve some risk-taking, right? Not mm-hmm. compromising safety risks, But doing things differently, exploring, being vulnerable, saying something, letting a need be shown that you usually kind of tuck away, right? That those are all risk taking that increases sexual health. Right. And maybe even when we uh, like, and I'm, I'm talking about this from kind of a moving into a healthy sexuality space. So when we have created some of that safety, maybe sharing our fantasies right? Like I think that that being able to be seen by the things that like do turn you on or are gratifying to you where you go when you're by yourself, like sharing that with a partner can be powerful and incredibly connecting. And And again, like, and very vulnerable. Yeah. Okay. So anything else before we wrap up? I mean, like I have a couple of like, maybe this is what Like if you're like, okay, all of that sounds good. Where do I even start? Okay. Like, I think you got to talk to somebody, right? So even if that's in like talking to your partner or a therapist or like a trusted friend of like, how do I move? Like, this is new to me and super scary. And I don't know how to even start. Like maybe. And let's be honest, not all therapists are comfortable going here with their clients. Yeah. And, and I would say that too. Like I, I get that a lot from clients who have seen other therapists before of like, their therapist would never even talk about this. Yeah. Or and, like I brought up one piece of it and the therapist didn't pick it up. So I never brought it up again. Yeah. So again, like creating some kind of safety and like putting some feelers out there of like, how do I talk about this? When do I talk about this? What does that look like? I, I would definitely say like in terms of getting in touch with your body, like meditation, yoga, mindfulness, mm-hmm. like those kinds of things are very practical Um, They're also very pop culture right now. You can find videos on YouTube on how to meditate and how to do yoga and, you know, mindfulness exercises. So I think that those things are very like simplistic in nature, but they do help us come back to our body. Right. Um, Talking to your partner in sex, I think can be huge. Like, Mm -hmm. how does this feel? Is this okay? Are you good? Like laughing in mm-hmm. sex, I think can be a big thing. And so there's some of that, like just putting some of those little things into practice that can make a big impact. Um, mm-hmm. But I would say like, if this is a place that you're trying to go and you're kind of spinning your wheels, I would do some therapist interviews and see who, who is willing to go there. Right. Wh- where do we, how do we do this? Where do we go? What does that look like? Yeah. So those are kind of my off the, off the top of my head. Like if you're trying to figure out, okay, yeah, these all sound good. Where do I go now? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I like that. And I think they're going to be kind of these 
small incremental steps that actually, when you look back, you're like, wow, I'm in a different place with my sexual feelings, my sexual attitudes and my sexual experiences. Yeah. I would also, I mean, there's a couple of books that we mentioned today that I would definitely kind of lean into like the erotic intelligence, which is more written for addicts, but I think that like moving into healthy sexuality, but if you, and that, I mean, that author, Alex Kadehakis, I mean, she's a colleague of ours. She also has a book called Mirror of Intimacy, which which is so good. Yeah. I think it's so good for couples to do. It's kind of a daily thing that you read. It may take, may take 10 minutes, right? Yeah. And it kind of bookends your day, right? So you have some things to do in the evening. Part of that is talking about these things. So that's great. It's on Amazon, Mirror of Intimacy. That's a great uh, resource as well for both males and females in a relationship together. Yeah. And also the book is just beautiful. Like if you buy the actual physical copy, like it's just a beautiful book and I love beautiful books. So that that's a thing, but like, yeah, I have clients read the like descriptor in the morning and then take the day to really like think about it and kind of flush that out and talk about the questions and things at night. Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of a beautiful intentional way to get into this. Mm -hmm. Um, and she really does like it's 365 excerpts or, uh, readings and things. So like she covers way more than we've covered in four podcasts. And I, I, I love that book. I think it's beautiful. Um, I also think that Brene Brown's work, if you're willing to take it to a sexual space and look at sexual change specifically uh-huh. around some of her writings are really, really powerful. And so like, I would even go there. So those are the, the couple that I would kind of start with. Yeah. I think that's, those are some great resources. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, this was fun. We should do this. This was again. fun. Yeah. <laughs> At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.